0: Welcome, friends, to a bonus episode of the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. This is Ruth Haley Barton, and our podcast is on hiatus for the summer, but I had a great opportunity to talk with Glenn Packiam, who is the the author of The Resilient Pastor, Leading Your Church in a Rapidly Changing World. And in his book, he is unpacking the new Barna research and also talking about how pastors can be resilient in these very difficult and challenging days. I had such a good time talking with Glenn. We talked about why it's so hard for pastors to prioritize their life with God. We talked about the difference between performing our spirituality and cultivating a spiritual life. We talked about four challenges for pastors, four challenges for the church, and so we just had a wide-ranging conversation that was just full of great energy, and I'm so glad to be able to offer this to you uh, during the summer months when you might have a chance to reflect also on how you're doing as a pastor and how you might be able to even use the summer months to shore up your own relationship with God. Also wanna let you know that even though we're on hiatus this summer, we are busily planning for a new season that will start in the fall. And the season is on my new book, Embracing Rhythms of Work and Rest from Sabbath to Sabbatical and Back Again. And so that will be our fall season. And the book will be launching in the fall. And this podcast season will be me speaking with uh, many really great guests about Um, the Sabbath, and how we all can incorporate Sabbath and sabbatical into our lives. So hope you enjoy this bonus episode, and I look forward to being back with you in the fall. Glenn, it's so good to be with you, and I'm really, really excited to talk about your new book, The Resilient Pastor, Leading Your Church in a Rapidly Changing World. Thank you for writing it. The first thing I want to say is just thank you for writing it. It's, It's a very important book.
1: Thank you, Ruth, and what an honor to talk to you. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for who you are and for the gift that you are to the church and to so many of us as leaders and pastors.
0: Oh, well, I feel like this conversation has been a long time coming. So maybe let's start by you just telling us the story of how this book came to be, because I, I found that kind of fascinating.
1: Yeah, in early 2020, I think February of 2020, David Kinnaman, the president mm-hmm. of Barna, approached me and he said, Hey, would you want to partner with us to write um, a book about the you know challenges of doing ministry in a mm-hmm. changing world. and and I thought, wow, what a privilege to be able to partner with with Barna. They're obviously mm-hmm. a, known for their data and insights. And I love kind of pairing, you know, situational analysis with theological reflection, uh, pairing yeah. insight with wisdom. So I, I I jumped at the chance. I thought, man, this is great. And then a, I outlined these eight challenges that are facing the pastor and the church, four for the pastor and four for mm-hmm. the church. And then shortly after that, the pandemic broke out. So (laughs) the best laid plans, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I thought either either God has tricked me into saying yes here or he knew what he was doing. And this this is going to be a project that, um, you know, has some has some need to it. And so uh, we got to work together, me and the and the Barna research team in the fall of 2020, Mm -hmm. kind of putting these questions Mm -hmm. together. And they went out to hundreds of pastors, even early 2021. And we also got to ask some questions of the general population, mm-hmm. which was really, really uh, helpful to kind of gauge their attitudes toward church and towards the pastor. And and then I did some focus groups on my own with pastors in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. just to kind of say, okay, here's what we're hearing back from these surveys, but what about you guys? Tell me your stories. Let's go beyond mm-hmm. the numbers here into these stories. And so all of that sort of formed kind of the, the insight piece. Mm-hmm. The wisdom piece, I was culling from church history and from the scriptures themselves because uh, Ruth I kind of got tired of people saying this is all unprecedented I mean yes in some ways Mm -hmm. of course every moment is is new and yet there's nothing new under the Sun right right. there's a sense in which the church has been here before and it's a little bit like our Elijah moment Lord I'm the only one Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) and God saying actually turn the pages of history back look at the 300s the 500s -hmm. the 1500s whatever so I've tried in the book to provide some wisdom from our greater church family here, not only the global church, but also the historic church.
0: Yeah, thank you. You know, one of the things that struck me was just your own personal story, too, of being a pastor in a church where your senior pastor had a significant moral failure and just how that spun you and spun your own sense of your own calling. So could you talk a little bit also about your personal story and how it informs the work that you've done here?
1: Well, I never imagined that I would be a pastor, Ruth. I, I grew up in Malaysia. My parents were—they um, were late to the vocational ministry work themselves. They were both had uh, careers in, in, in different fields. Um, but you know, I, I watched eventually when they stepped into leading a church. I watched them struggle. I watched the the difficulty of, of pioneering pastoral work, church planting mm-hmm. work. And I thought I I don't want to do that. I was a musician. I came to the States to go to college and I was involved traveling with a band. And I thought this is way more Mm -hmm. fun. You know, I I, I could do this. (laughs) And uh, but God had other plans and and directed me to this church here in Colorado Springs, where I've been for 22 years. But six years in, as you mentioned, there was a, a major scandal with the founding senior pastor. And I was in my late 20s at the time and it was, you Mm -hmm. know, it it rocked me. Not because I hadn't, you know, seen scandals before, but just, you know, you you join a place and you think that, okay this one is going to be different or this one is special or this one has, you know. And so to see it happen and to kind of have front row seats to that was a very difficult time. But very, very early on in, in the post sort of scandal crisis. Um, the Holy Spirit did a thing where it it became less about someone else's sin and more about the condition of my own soul. And Mm -hmm. so this sort of spotlight on someone else's failure really became a searchlight unto my own heart. Mm -hmm. And that led me to ask, you know, some difficult questions like, what does it actually mean to be a pastor? And and Mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a church? And so that began sort of this almost like reaffirming my calling to be a pastor, um, but in a purifying way.
0: Mm hmm. Wow. Well, I want to get back to those two questions because I heard the two questions like all the way through. What does it mean to be a pastor? What does it mean to be a church? What is a church? What is the mm-hmm. church? And I think that is one question that the pandemic actually did surface because is being in your pajamas and watching online a church that could be anywhere next door or in you know some other state is that church? Is that going to church? I mean, is you right. know right. I, I, right. the the right. pandemic has surfaced the most interesting set of questions about both the pastoral vocation and what the church is. But I don't want to go there quite yet. We're going to get there. So Glenn, I want to talk really from the beginning of the book where I thought that David Kinnaman's forward was so important because he just walks Mm -hmm. right through the shifting landscape, the social norms and perspectives that are edging us further towards secularism. I mean, he nailed it, a growing indifference towards Christianity, um, especially among younger people the increasing perception that orthodox christian faith is extremist and maybe even some cases wrong around some topics mm-hmm. the credibility gap that's been created by so much moral failure which you've even experienced with a pastor in your own life the the promise and the peril of ministry in the digital age you know the the changes that the digital age has brought to not only how we do church but also people's attention spans like it's changed what we believe yeah. people can actually tolerate in terms of yeah receiving information and perspectives. And then, you know, the the generational gaps that make ministry to millennials and Gen Z, and I love this, equal parts vexing and perplexing. You know? <laughs> and the rewards of doing it well, but who's doing it well? You know, it's a, that's a very hard thing. So I really appreciated the context that he created in a very short piece of writing. Yeah. But then you acknowledge the same thing in a different way in your uh, prologue where you talk about the fact that the pandemic has not really brought about a lot of new changes, it's more that it has accelerated changes that were already in process. And you actually called it in that way, apocalyptic. And I agree with you. I think the word (laughs) apocalyptic, in terms of the fact that apocalyptic means actually revealing the deeper truth Mm -hmm. about things, I I, I think it is apocalyptic right now. What's been revealed that was already there and always there. So can you talk a little bit about the changes that you think are being accelerated From the pandemic and what's being surfaced in that, uh, you know, apocalyptic way.
1: Yeah, you know, when 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 people think about you know wars and plagues and you know all of this stuff, you're like, oh my goodness, this Mm -hmm. is the apocalyptic as in end times. Well, actually, that word, as you said, means Mm -hmm. a a revealing, and the pandemic Mm -hmm. was a great revealer. So, in some ways, that it instigates some changes. Sure, you know, things Mm -hmm. like. Uh, masks becoming, the, you know, the, 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 you know, m- more part of our lives than they ever have been. But in other ways, it accelerated changes, and in other ways, it revealed the changes. So mm-hmm. the metaphor that I use in this prologue is uh, of the earthquake that created the tsunami that happened back in 2004. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, real event, real tragedy. Uh, but for our purposes here, kind of this word picture. So I talk about the shift, the surge, and the aftermath. And the Mm -hmm. shift is kind of the shift between these two tectonic plates Mm -hmm. of Christianity and culture. And particularly in the West, those two things have kind of sat side by side. They're not the same thing. I'm not trying to say that our culture was Christian, Mm -hmm. but those two things have sat at at relative ease uh, alongside each other. But more recently, there's been more of this friction, more of this shift of of these tectonic plates where Mm -hmm. the culture at large kind of says, no, hang on, we don't really want those elements of Christianity or we don't actually want uh, any of this influence or we want some of that, but not this. And then as that earthquake and that ocean floor created the tsunami, there's this swell now of... Mm -hmm other ways of making meaning out of life because mm-hmm. the thing is as human beings we crave meaning we want to find significance to our lives so you take away this kind of meta-narrative or you take away this, the framing story that we used to have of God and Jesus and you know whatever else that's vaguely been there in the water you take that away it doesn't just go to a vacuum It, it there's a surge now and maybe an accelerated surge mm-hmm of these other alternate meaning making uh, frames. And I name just three of them in the book. There's there's a lot of people who've done some great work on this and I'm trying to synthesize some mm-hmm. of their work and add my own mm-hmm. language to it. But I describe one of these things as a new kind of pluralism where we're, we're mixing and matching. You know, Ruth, I, I grew up in Malaysia where there's lots mm-hmm. of other religions. Christianity was only 10 or 11%. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had the majority Muslims, you had Buddhists, you had Hindus. That's an old kind of pluralism where they're all there, but they're all distinct. Mm -hmm. The new kind of pluralism is let's blur the lines. Let's mix and match.
0: Take whatever fits here and there and put it together into your own expression. Yes. Yes
1: yeah and even when we're talking about spirituality it sort of gets in this nebulous kind of mode yeah. here of it places you at the center of it all and you can kind of mix match so that we're seeing that and we're not just seeing that in the culture we're seeing that in the church as well so the people that are listening they want a little bit of the jesus stuff but they mm-hmm. also want some of this other stuff and so that's one of the 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 the, the, the changes that have been accelerated And then I talk about a new kind of paganism. Now, this one is tricky. You know, paganism in the ancient world are these idols that you can kind of do transactions with them. If you want Mm -hmm. fertility, you go to this idol. You want victory, you go to this idol and on and on. Well, the new gods, if you will, are the gods of... Uh, economic the economic system maybe it's it's this the, the nation-state or a political sort of objective uh, maybe it's technology not in a um, neutral sense but technology when it becomes ultimate and what happens is we, we sort of say you know what these things can actually deliver uh, the things that I need in an mm-hmm. ultimate way so why did we see people get so uh, riled up about the elections a few years ago or all, some of these uh, political talking points. It's because we've over invested in those things as our kind of new pagan gods that if I get my person in power, then they get, I get this sort of back. So it's this transaction that happens. And again, it's infected the church. And then finally, the third sort of change that's been accelerated is this acceleration of hyper-individualism. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, we, we all got locked down. We all got to you know, had to try to figure out how to do uh, life and community in a more isolated way. And that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sense in which we become the creators of ourself. Where we get to decide this is who I am and maybe social media in some ways, you know, you curate this vision of yourself. But now it's not just an image. It's actually your whole identity is you're in charge of it. You're in charge of of crafting Mm -hmm. this and and then you're in charge of determining how that shows up and gets expressed. And man, once again, you know, I wish I could say, oh, that's the big bad world out there. No, no, it's Mm -hmm. it's in the church, too.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, that is, I think, a very helpful encapsulation of some of the things that we're that we're facing and why the pastoral vocation is so hard and challenging right now. When I look at any one of those things, I can see immediately that the inherent challenges for the pastor, you know, in, in within those realities. Exactly. So, I mean, that's just it's so incredibly real what pastors are facing. And I know that part of your hope in writing this book is to help pastors find their way through some of these dynamics that we're all facing and um, if you would restate the data around how many pastors Mm -hmm. are contemplating leaving ministry or have left ministry or whatever can you recap that data for us
1: yeah it it really is a a complex and complicated time ruth and you know i said the shift the surge and the aftermath the aftermath is messy so we have Mm -hmm. some people who are in our churches but they're very much leaning towards these these other paradigms or other ways of making meaning. Mm-hmm. so it, be, it makes our work very taxing some of what i'm trying to do in the book is help us name the complexity even if the answers yes. or solutions are are not simple we can at least name some of these mm-hmm. things and and yeah so january of 2021 29 percent of pastors um, we're seriously considering quitting uh, vocational ministry. Mm-hmm. By October of 2021, that number rose to 38%. Mm-hmm. And there's some stuff that, that Barn is about to release that actually says that number keeps climbing. Yes. And so as this stuff just keeps taking a toll, Um, on all of us that are leading and trying to lead in this complexity and we're speaking you know the thing is we're speaking to now a congregation that is a mix of all kinds of different influences and you know it's not like we can make certain assumptions about our starting points people are starting from all different places as they're listening to us try to shepherd them Mm
0: -hmm. well you know there, the question. There's so many questions that emerge from this. <laughs> you have raised a wonderful question at the beginning of chapter one. You say that one of the more interesting public conversations has been about whether churches are essential to society. So when we were trying to figure out essential businesses, were you know the, a big question mm-hmm. around was mm-hmm. is the church essential? Fascinating question. Uh-huh. Fascinating question. Uh-huh. And then, you know, if you go even deeper, are we dispensers of goods and services? Are we optional gatherings like concerts and sporting events? Are worship services leisure activities or sacred duties? Oh, there's a world of reflection right there on the question, what is the church? And the pandemic has just complicated the situation because I will say that before the pandemic, I'm not sure that any of us were accustomed to thinking that church was something you did in your pajamas at home, right? Right. Before the pandemic? Right. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you're, I think you're exactly right. I don't <laughs> think anyone would have thought that that would... You know, sort I'm of sitting pass here eating for, my toast you know.
0: and drinking my orange juice in my pajamas, watching it online, turning and talking to someone while the pastor's preaching. Is that church? Uh, Honestly, <sighs>
1: <laughs> well, and the crazy thing, Ruth, is all of a sudden overnight we had to tell people That's to do right. that. That's right, so, and we were so yeah, so we a were a, the ones telling we, them to do
0: it. <laughs> we're
1: saying please do this,
0: you know. That's right, and, and now and, we want to get them and back, you, and we can't because they're enjoying being in their pajamas so much on a Sunday I've morning. Talked to,
1: <laughs> I've talked to so many people who've said, you know, I kind of got in this habit. I'm aware it's not mm-hmm. a great habit, but here we are, you know. And, and even for us as pastors, what did that do to our own sense of vocation to mm-hmm. be looking in the camera and looking at a screen and oh, all this stuff? Yes. Because it's a, it's a little bit, uh, it's disembodied, isn't it? I mean, we're yeah. trying to sort of take ourselves out of it. Now, I'm fully aware that actually it really helped for, for a lot of people who, who struggled with accessibility challenges because of uh, vulnerabilities or mm-hmm. health or, or all of that. This was a great blessing. I, mm-hmm. I heard, also heard people say, "Oh, thank you! Finally, you you realize, you know, that mm-hmm. there's other people who can't access this." So there there was a gift in that too. I know for us as a mm-hmm. church, we began um, broadcasting a little bit on on local TV, and there's been people in senior care facilities and yeah. in correctional facilities who said. This is amazing. We, we don't have internet here or we don't know how to work, you know, YouTube or whatever, but, but here's this, this access. So we've kind of learned, oh, there there were some people on the margins of what we were doing uh, that now this, this makes a way on the other hand there's other people that you have to say okay now if you are able you need to try to come back you need to return for the health of your own soul yeah. um, for the sake of each other and and not just i mean this is where the consumerist thing has really come to bite us because mm-hmm. we kind of taught people that church was where you consume consume right. content consu- mm-hmm. consume the song that you like or whatever that's you know? right and now we're saying uh, actually we need you to be contributors and if, if you're not there, you know, maybe Sally won't be encouraged because she was always counting on your greeting to, you know, whatever that might be.
0: Well, and it strikes me that there is a difference between someone who attended a church physically for 50 years and then is in a senior home yeah. and would like, to, would like to be able to watch even though they can no longer get to a church building. That is really different. Than young families with young children who the children never have experienced what it means to be a part of a community, to go up and put their little money in the offering, or to have older people who connect with them every week, or to see families going up for communion and to receive communion or a blessing at, at the rail. I mean, we're gonna. It's possible that there's gonna be a whole generation of people who never experienced a real tactile experience with a pastor and with a community and with the sacraments and, you know, yeah. so yeah. Th- there's a difference. I-, I love the way you said that, that there are, that we've discovered that there is a group of people who have been on the margins that we haven't paid enough attention to the elderly who have mm-hmm. given themselves to a community for years, but now have no w- way to access it or people who are mm-hmm. in other ways challenged. But that's a different situation than choosing not Absolutely. to engage the real life of a community. Absolutely. Um, so I have I, I do you have any thoughts about uh, about where we might end up on the other side of all this? I mean, with the church,
1: right. it's an interesting thing, Ruth, here we are after Easter and anecdotally, you know, a lot of pastor friends that I've talked to, they said, oh, this is one of the you know more encouraging Easter's mm-hmm. in three years, you know. But I don't think there's a going back. I don't mm-hmm. think we should think in terms of like, well, let's just get back to what we, mm-hmm. uh, what we were. I do think one of the one of the things that maybe it exposed is is if there were some of us who were a little too Sunday centric, a little too platform centric, mm-hmm. maybe platform driven. Uh, the pandemic is a moment to kind of say, how do we get the body of Christ doing ministry with one another and for one another? True sort of koinonia, true sort of fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that has become important. And to me, part of the focus, Ruth, is to push people back towards saying, have one another in your homes, share Mm -hmm. meals together again, pray with one another again. And you're almost recognizing community on those micro levels. And then that is, is what will sort of pull you back into that larger gathering. Whereas before it was like, come for the show and then stay for the food or whatever, you know, yeah. join the small group. And yeah. I, I almost wonder if we're going to reverse engineer this by saying, let's get connected in, in one another's homes mm-hmm. and then together. Now, come on, let's all get together on Sundays and worship together as the yeah. people of God.
0: Yeah, I do wonder if there is going to be a growing and underlying desire for that physical togetherness that That even though for a while we took the, you know, we had to take the route of watching online and making it more of a spectator thing than it ever was. If we're, if we might listen to our desires and our longings around community and and communion, maybe do something different with those desires. Like you said, gathering one another's homes, but still experience that desire again and, and an experiential knowledge that it's not the same. It's not the same yeah. to watch online as to really be a part of a community. Right. And can we capitalize on this moment to to talk about that in honest, not shaming ways, but honest ways right. about what it means to be human with each other?
1: Yes. I love that phrase, Ruth, mm-hmm. what it means to be human with each other, because... Mm-hmm. Uh, co-presence in a room is different than consuming content, you know? That's right. And and it it, it allows us to talk again about what the family of God means and what the body of Christ means. And so anyway, yeah, I love that phrase.
0: Well, and I read an article recently that I want to spend a little bit more time with, but it was an article articulating and describing the difference between sitting in silence alone and the practice of silence in community with others. And how the almost the the vibrations that are there between us, even when we're in silence, and how we hold one another, even in silence without words and all of that, that our physical presence, the energy Uh of our physical presence, holds us differently than Mm. having silence alone in a room. I just because I've got I have such an interest in silence and solitude. That article really struck me, and I was glad somebody really articulated that difference Mm -hmm. we had an interesting experience you know we do we we do what we do deliver it through retreats everything we do Mm -hmm. is in retreat format but there was a period of time when Mm -hmm. we too had to either do the whole thing virtually or do it in a hybrid fashion it was it was excruciatingly difficult you know Mm -hmm. for us we had to hire additional staff to help us pull it off we paid a lot of money for you know Compa- you know, companies that could actually do yeah. what we didn't know how to do and weren't able to do. Yeah. But we did it, and I'm not sorry. People were really grateful that we did what we could. But I'm telling you, the minute the mandates started being lifted and people could travel again, I mean the minute, even while we were completely masked and everything, people were begging us to go ahead and do the in-person retreat. They begged us, yeah. and they all came. Yeah. At The minute they yeah. could come, they came to a retreat. And our retreats are full and overflowing and we've got waiting lists. And it's I think it's because the having to be on technologies created such an emptiness and a longing inside. Number one, for the physical connections with other humans, but also the the, the sacred space where I can be quiet with God, yes. where I'm not trying to yeah. do solitude in my bedroom while my kids are bouncing on the couch out, outside the room, you know? that the the longing for real deep solitude it's like if you're going to provide me with a place I will come because I'm desperate for the deeper solitude so that's the church we got so much more to say but we won't but now let's talk about the pastor for a minute okay so you're asking the question we are asking the question what is the church now especially on the other side of the pandemic but you also really raised the question so beautifully about what is the pastor you know, mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. and how this experience that we've been in together has also caused pastors to question their own vocation. And mm-hmm. you tell about your journey to go see Eugene Peterson, which was completely lovely to read. Um, <laughs> but then your own your own your own wrestling with the question, what is a pastor really? What does it mean for me to be a pastor? Can you talk about that yeah. a little bit? I loved reading about that
1: well you know ruth i mean eugene what a sage he was to 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 all of us and and peterson's writings you know over the years have been so helpful and when i i started reading the books that he'd written in the late 90s you know uh, working the angles and the contemplative pastor and under the unpredictable plan. And I was reading this in the wake of, you know, the our own sort of crisis when the when the scandal happened in late 2006. So, I'm reading this in early 2007 and it's messing with me in all the right mm-hmm. ways, but also creating confusion like like mm-hmm. oh my goodness. So, so does that mean I need to leave the context that I'm in and can I actually be a pastor mm-hmm. here and and uh and so I wrote to Eugene, and he was so kind to to host me and a friend of mine uh, in, in their home, he and Jan, for a couple of days. And one of the things that, that stood out to me from our visit was just him saying there's no perfect context in which to be a pastor. Mm. So we're not looking for ideal conditions. We're not looking for mm-hmm. everything to sort of line up and then aha, this is the perfect denomination or this is the perfect, you know. The goal is to sort of find a space where you can live out this vocation with a sense of holiness, where you're you're doing it faithfully and in a, in a way mm-hmm. that uh, embodies this kind of holiness. But then, you know, Eugene described the pastoral vocation as someone who Pays attention to God at work in the lives and stories mm-hmm. and details of the people. Pays attention and then calls attention to it. And that has been so helpful to me over the years because now I don't go into an appointment, whether it's coffee or a more serious, mm-hmm. you know, counseling, pastoral counseling, that sort of thing. I don't go in sort of thinking, okay, how do I fix them or what's the thing? I realize job number one is to be a witness. Mm-hmm. It's to be a witness to to what God is Trying to do in their lives, and sometimes being a witness means saying, uh, "Do you think that maybe God is trying to say this?" Yeah. You know, uh, and 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 oftentimes I realize I'm really just pointing out the invitation to carry a cross. Uh, so someone might come to me in this situation, I might say, "Do you know what I recognize here is this cross that God is giving?" Or other times it's what I recognize is the grace of God at work in, in in the midst of and not, you know, we don't want to do this in Job's comforter sort of mm-hmm. ways, you know, trite sort of ways yeah. that, that minimize it. But there are there are all kinds of ways where our job is to is to again pay attention and call attention to God at work. But that's slow work, that's um it, you, you can't scale that kind of work. It's you, you don't sort of mass But pre- it's very different work than preaching. Um, it's the sitting with, prayerfully sitting with another person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was an amazing opportunity that you had, and I can see why you still cherish it to this day. You know, the opportunity to be with Eugene Peterson for several days and just learn from him. And it sounds like he was pretty pivotal in helping you to clarify your calling in the midst of your own confusion around what it means to be a pastor. So let's talk for a few minutes about the challenges that you see facing pastors. You mentioned four challenges. Would you state those for us and say a yeah. little bit about them?
1: Yeah, uh, the first challenge is the challenge of vocation. Like, what are mm-hmm. we actually called to do? What are we actually yeah. called to be? And and Ruth, this is the sort of thing where over the decades, uh, the expectations from people, it's not as if their way of defining our vocation has just sort of been interchangeable where one kind of thing replaced the other. I kind of think of it as it's just stacked You know like Mm -hmm. these jenga blocks and so at first it was you got to be a a a great sort of priest and prayerful person then you got to be a theologian then you Mm got to be an expert therapist then you got to be you know an entrepreneur and then you got to be an activist and it's like, uh, okay, and don't forget is, production un- and
0: programming. You have to be an expert in production <laughs> <Right>. and programming. <laughs> right,
1: right. Yeah, one of, one of the pastors in my focus group said, "You know, Glenn, I, 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 the part of my job I didn't realize is that I was going to be an event planner. I had that's no right. idea. Exactly. I was exactly. So,
0: so <laughs> See, I'm a pastor's kid, and my dad's role was so simple compared to yeah. what pastors are required to do now. And I think that's really important to name. He wouldn't have. He didn't even know how to turn a turn on a microphone. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so
1: so it's not like we've (laughs) subbed out those expectations. We've just kept adding them and stacking them, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's the challenge of vocation. What are we actually Mm -hmm. called to be? And then the second challenge is the challenge of spirituality. How do we Mm -hmm. renew our own soul? which of course is what you have spent you know, decades helping pastors do. And then, and then thirdly is the challenge of relationships. How do we make sure that we're surrounded by the right people mm-hmm. um, in, in, in our lives? And then finally, the fourth one is the challenge of credibility, which is h- how do we become trustworthy people in, mm-hmm. a, in a, a cynical world?
0: Yeah wow those you're you're so right to say that even just naming the challenges or naming complexity is actually a healing thing because Mm. if you don't name them out loud you have no idea what soup you're swimming in you're just in a soup yeah and you don't even know what you're trying to do and so even to name these i hope that it in some ways it brings some peace to say oh that's yeah. why this is so hard right now that's the soup i'm swimming in that's the muddle those are the questions and and once right. i know what they are i can i can start to get after it you know a little bit
1: and, and maybe just to help them know that they're not the only ones that that's they're right. uh, that oh this is a thing <laughs> you know mm-hmm. this is a real thing yeah yeah Sorry.
0: So I wanted to conclude by, you know, us meeting in this place that we that we now know we have in common and that is the concern for the pastor's spirituality and I'd like to conclude our conversation by talking a little bit about what you've learned about pastor spirituality, what you're seeing, what are the questions, what do you think is needed because um that's where our, my passion and your passion would meet because I too yes. have a great deal of concern about spirituality, and you already mentioned yeah. a true truth, and that is that the word spirituality is used in a lot of different ways right now in yeah, that, yeah. you know, part that you talked about the pluralism, and so maybe even talk about that a little bit. How do you understand spirituality, and what are the challenges there for pastors?
1: Well, as a Christian, spirituality begins and ends with with Jesus. I mean, this mm-hmm. is this is the starting point. He is our first love, mm-hmm. and I think very often of that story at the end of John's gospel when Jesus is renewing Peter's call. He doesn't say, Peter, don't you love the church or Peter, don't you love mm-hmm. the kingdom or Peter, do you love the, my teaching? You know, teach others this teaching. Uh, he says, Peter, do you love me? And and for all of us as, as Christians, that's where we start. That is our first love. That is our mm-hmm. first call. And so spirituality I- I is about this recalibrating our hearts, reorienting our hearts back to Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's the one that we're, we're trying to, to reorient. We're but i think why it's so challenging ruth and why i'm so so grateful for your work and i reference your work in this chapter you wrote a reflection paragraph at the end of this chapter is is because we we as pastors number one we think that that's a luxury that we're Mm -hmm. not supposed to take time for ourselves and we think of the verses where paul says you know i'm poured out like a drink offering (laughs) you know and we think oh this is what i'm supposed to you know and we and we take we we miss out on the fact that mm-hmm. Paul had a deep life of prayer. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what what other reason would there be for he's writing letters from prison most of them? And all of a sudden, oh, there's prayers coming out. Even Romans mm-hmm. is big work of theology. There's prayers that are coming out in Romans. Yes. There's prayers coming out in Ephesians. There's prayers coming out in, in Philippians. It's like maybe they erupt. Songs.
0: Isn't it like they just erupt? Like he's yes. thinking these yes. deep theological thoughts, and then the prayer just erupts out of him. Like he's yes. relating to God in the midst of it.
1: Yes. And as a as a kind of former you know worship leader and songwriter, I, I kind of like to think maybe Paul was writing songs, and, yeah. and he had this sort of deep life with God mm-hmm. that produced these these songs and prayers. So so it's not a luxury. It's our starting point. You know, when when Jesus called the 12, he called them, the Gospels tell us, to himself, mm-hmm. and then he sent them out. So there's, there, it's not a luxury. But maybe the other thing that, that is a trap for pastors, Ruth, is we think only in a limited spectrum of spiritual practices. So if, if you're like me and you're in a, you know, sort of evangelical mm-hmm. kind of whatever church, it, you think of songs and music, or you think mm-hmm. of prayer meetings, or you think of reading your Bible, and and, and and that's great. Those are obviously, you know, sort of staples. But I think what happens to us, and there's actually some sociological research on this. When I was doing my doctoral work on on hope, I discovered that, that when people who work in a certain line of, of work, there are certain things that fatigue the muscle, you know, and so when you are constantly engaging God publicly with this sort of same mode, you're you're in a way performing your spirituality, you're you're doing your yes. a performance of mm-hmm. your piety. So you're praying in front of people, you're loving the Bible in front of people, you're singing in front of people, even when you're on the, you know, the front row, people are watching mm-hmm. how the pastor, how, you know, is worshiping or, or praying. And and so because of that it's almost as if those spiritual practices are they 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 have the tendency to lose a bit of the their power for us because mm-hmm. our engagement with them has a sense of fatigue and so what we need is to introduce ourselves to a wider spectrum of spiritual practices which again when i read strengthen the soul of your leadership and i realized oh ruth is focusing in on solitude and 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 stillness and the moses story i thought this is genius because that those are not sunday morning practices those are not the kinds of practices that pastors engage in so it's one thing to say prioritize your own life with god it's another thing to say and here's how by using practices that are a broader spectrum that are maybe different from mm-hmm. the ones that you're leading yeah. other people in That's and that right. becomes such a key life-giving uh, maybe even a transformative moment for for mm-hmm. leaders
0: yeah I remember when I first started Spiritual Direction and I had been, you know, I've been a Christian since I was four years old because my dad is a pastor and had been working Mm -hmm. in ministry, you know, from the minute I could. And the scriptures had become so dry for me. Like there was just, I'd studied them since I was so little and memorized them. And I remember bringing that to my spiritual director and she said, well, just stop, just stop for a while. (laughs) I was shocked. It never occurred to me that as a good Christian, I could stop reading the Bible for a while, you know, yes, and yes. it was the greatest freedom. And, and that began, you know, my journey into solitude and silence, which was a lot more open and receptive versus me trying to accomplish things in in those moments. And then eventually God brought the, the scriptures back with some practices that yes. were a little bit more receptive versus working so hard and achievement oriented. But it was the most shocking. I, I'm just so appreciative of what you said, because it's an articulation of that moment for me, which was, <laughs> she just said, well, just yeah. stop then. And I'm like, oh, am I allowed to do that? Are good Christians allowed to do that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and, um, and, and 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 in a similar way for me, you know, having spent in a number of years, mm-hmm. my first nine, eight or nine years at New Life, you know, re- leading worship through music and song, and then all of a sudden discovering life in reading prayers out of an Anglican prayer mm-hmm. book or listening to an even song choir singing yeah. the Psalms. I mean, some of us, I, I think people around me wondered, like, has Glenn gone off the deep end mm-hmm. here, you know? And and our tendency is to, you know, let's use the metaphor of a well. You know, our tendency, if a well is no longer able to, to, to replenish us and quench our thirst, because we're serving other people water mm. out of this well, we tend to sort of say, oh, well, there must be something wrong with the well, and we poison the well. And this is mm-hmm. what people do. Oh, this is mm. all bad, or this is all wrong. But actually, the answer for us is just dig a new well. It's the same water table. It's the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit that b- reveals Jesus. The same water table, but we need a new well to access yes, this I love that. Uh, when the other one is is not
0: quenching. Yeah, yeah that's, that's wonderful. I love that metaphor. I'm gonna take that with me. As we close, you have uh, some data in here about pastors' spiritual investment in themselves. Uh, you asked a simple question, how simple or difficult is it for you to find time in your ministry schedule to invest in your own spiritual development? What did you find out about, what did you find out, and <laughs> and then I want to talk about the why of it, you know, as we're closing, and how we can well, be in, resp- in the end.
1: Yeah, in response to that, 53% of pastors said it's somewhat difficult or very difficult, so it's about half pastors like Mm -hmm. this is difficult Mm -hmm. when we slice this by age the pastors over 50 it was a a little bit better instead of 53 percent it was 47 percent said somewhat difficult or very difficult but then under 50 it's actually higher it was 60 percent so there's a there's a little bit of a disparity there and i don't know uh you know all the reasons of 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 why that is ruth but i think what one of my guesses is the pastors who've been at this a while uh are women and men who recognize You don't, you don't last if you don't prioritize your own sort of life with God. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think for anyone who's in that, you know, maybe you're, you're in your first decade of ministry, you've got a lot of natural, maybe useful God-given energy, Mm -hmm. um, but we're not meant to run on that. You've talked about the, the hormone impact of the stress hormone, Mm -hmm. cortisone or adrenaline or whatever it is. You can run on that when you're young and it masks a lot of, Mm -hmm. of unhealth, um, and I think we would do well to actually preempt the crash and to say, you know, what do older, wiser, seasoned pastors know that I don't know? And that is that we need to prioritize our life with God.
0: Mm-hmm. And why do you think it's so hard? Why do you think it's so hard for pastors to prioritize this? It's kind of a mystery, isn't it? How we come into ministry because we love God <sighs> yeah. and because we feel called to it. And then somewhere through the whole experience, all of a sudden that relationship has faded and there we are just working really hard for, for Jesus.
1: You, Eugene wrote that the past the, the busy pastor is busy for two reasons. He's either lazy or he's vain. You know mm-hmm. and I think, I think what Eugene meant is uh, lazy because it actually takes quite a bit of work Ruth to intentionally carve out time in your schedule. Mm-hmm. It takes quite a bit of work to educate our people. We talked about the, those stacking expectations. It's a lot of effort to keep helping our people understand this is my job this is not my job this is your anxiety to carry this is not my anxiety Mm -hmm. to carry and and, and on and on so yeah lazy is a little bit that that's maybe a bit harsh Mm -hmm. but but maybe we don't want to take that work because it's a Mm -hmm. lot of work and then the vanity thing is real i mean i think all of us need to search our own souls because because um busyness feels like importance Uh, i i feel better about myself when people are liking my posts or commenting on my sermon or thanking me for a visit um versus when i'm sitting in silence and solitude with god mm-hmm. where's the accolades there you know yeah. and so there's there's probably some some sort of complex web of factors but again the uh, here's the you know it's, it's like the book um it's like writing, reading a book on how to read you know how to mm-hmm. read better <laughs> like how do how do we actually diagnose these problems if we won't stop and be still mm-hmm. and, and and maybe there are places where they need uh, your retreats, they need spiritual guides, spiritual directors to almost serve as a kind of intervention. Yeah, I agree. Uh, mm-hmm. And to make us recognize what's really going on.
0: Mm. Well, thank you, Glenn. Your work is so important. Your book, The Resilient Pastor, is so important. And I pray that our listeners might pick it up and seriously uh, engage some of the challenges that you're articulating and get on. I don't want to be trite, but get on the solution side of some of these things versus mm-hmm. just continuing mm-hmm. to swim in the soup. That would be
1: yeah. my
0: prayer. And so I'm wondering, as we close, do you have a blessing that you could offer pastors who are listening? How would you bless us sure. today sure. as we conclude?
1: Sure. Pastor, may you have the grace of God abound to you in every way that you would recognize how deeply the Father loves you, how Christ the risen one is at work in and through the church by the spirit so that you can live lightly and freely so you can recognize that the pressure's off and that if Jesus is risen from the dead, your labor Mm -hmm. will not be in Mm -hmm. vain. I bless you with that freedom Mm
0: -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. Amen. Mm -hmm. Amen. Thank you.